You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Romans 16. Again, let me give you a little background and just kind of review the background of this passage. And again, those of you that are tuning in online, thank you. It is great to have you guys joining us. Uh, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul uh, in about the late 50s, probably the year 57 is what most commentators uh, think he, w- he was writing it. He wrote from the city of Corinth, and he is writing to them for a couple of reasons. One is there was a really serious issue that had happened in that church. The Emperor Claudius, in the mid-50s, a few years before uh, this letter was written, had expelled all the Jews from Rome. Now, the reason he did that was because there was a lot of disputes going on about Christ. It was very disruptive. He got tired of it. He just expelled them, kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So the church in Rome that had started with Jewish people was led by Jewish people, founded by them, and would have had a very, of course, Jewish flavor uh, to the service. Um, they, uh, um, he would have, uh, I'm getting distracted here, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, would have had a very Jewish flavor. Obviously, when these Jews come back to their home church, it's been led by Gentiles. It, it now has changed to something more of a Gentile flavor. It's more Gentile-oriented. And so they're, they're there, and they're, you know, they're instead of, particularly instead of doing things like keeping the Sabbath, they were a little looser about holidays, they were looser about festivals, they were looser about dietary laws. And so when the, every week when the church would have what they called their love feast, the way the church in the first century did communion, they would literally have, after their service together, a potluck dinner. And then at, during that potluck dinner, they would take communion. Well, during this potluck dinner now, the Gentiles had gotten used to bringing meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which Jews were freaked out about. They were eating unkosher uh, meals. And so this was very agitating to the Jewish believers. And you could just imagine the, the, the ripeness for a schism and a conflict in a church with those kind of dynamics. So Paul's writing to them about that. And what he does in the first four chapters, he gives the most lengthy unpacking of what it means that Christians are saved by grace through faith. He goes on it for four chapters. And then the next four chapters, chapter 5 through 8, he talks about what it means to be in Christ. And the, the idea is that there are two types of human beings. There's a race of human beings that are from Adam, and there's a reborn race of human beings that are from Christ. And regardless of your, your ethnicity, your color, your background, whatever, you are as a Christian in Christ. You are in that family. And so he unpacks that for about four chapters. And then he goes through chapter 9 and 11 and talks about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how God has sovereignly called both to be a part of uh, what he is doing in the earth. And then he gets into chapter 12 and he gets more into the nuts and bolts of following the Lord and being a Christian. And he gets into what was the big issue in that day, which he calls it, just in a broad category, disputable matters. 
How do you handle disputable matters? How do you handle matters that aren't really clearly laid out in the Bible? And so he goes through that. And then he begins to talk about his second reason for writing, which is he is in, again, he's in Corinth. He's planning on taking this offering that he has collected from all these Gentile churches to Jerusalem to give to the Jerusalem church that had really suffered from a famine. And he wanted to do that as a witness to them. He thought that would be a very unifying uh, thing to do. So he's getting ready to do that. And he tells the church in Rome, after I dip, drop off this gift, I am going to go to Spain, which was the farthest most, uh, from their vantage point, western part of the Roman Empire that they knew about. He was going to go to Spain, and he wanted to stop in Rome on the way to let them know what he was doing, minister to them, have some time with them, raise support from them, maybe get some team members who'd want to go with him to Spain, and he was going to take the gospel all the way into Spain. So he's kind of focusing a lot now on the Spain part, the mission part, the extending part of that, of, of that reason for writing this letter. So, he's in, so in chapters 16, verse 17, he's writing here, and he's closing out the letter. He says in verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way and, and are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of your of you, but I also want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as does Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote this down, down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is hospitality, I and the whole church enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordius send you their greetings. Now, what Paul is going to do in this passage, he he is going to explain something that is very important you and I learn. And that's this. Christianity is a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. Christianity is meant to be lived out and experienced in the context of a team, of a community that functions together. And so when he gets here to verse 17, the first thing he says here, if you read about it, he goes, I urge you. And literally... In the Greek, he, it's a very, very strong word here for urge. He literally is saying, I am begging you. I'm begging you. And he talks about what to do. He's begging them to watch out for those who cause divisions, those who put obstacles in your path, and those who teach things that are contrary to the teaching he has talked about. Now, more than likely, what Paul had in mind was back in those days, there was a group called the Judaizers that would go follow Paul whenever he would go to a city and he would start a church, he'd get it going, and then he would leave. These guys would come in behind him. And these were Jewish believers who believed Jesus was Messiah, but they tweaked it just enough to say, but you still have to keep the law. You're saved by grace, but you still have to keep the law. It was kind of like Jesus did 90% of the saving, but your compliance does the other 10%. 
And you can imagine that kind of teaching in an environment into a church where there's already a, a socially a Jewish Gentile conflict going on to begin with would have been like, you know, fire, you know, uh, gas on a fire. And so Paul's probably being pretty preemptive. That's why he goes into a lot of detail about what it means that you're saved by grace through faith. And why he talks about the unity between Jew and Gentile believers extensively in this letter. He's probably being preemptive, but he's warning them. Hey, these guys are coming, and I'm warning you. I am begging you. Be very careful. And he warns them. And, and if you read every letter in the New Testament, one thing that is in every single letter in the New Testament is warning about false teachers and those that cause divisions. Every single one. In Acts chapter 20, you can read and you can look at verse 28 through 32 of Acts 20. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus where he had a great revival and he put his, uh, his protege Timothy in charge and he is talking to their elders. And as he's with them, he tells them in verse 28 through 32, he tells them, watch out. Watch out. Because there are going to be ravenous wolves coming in here to try to hurt the church and hurt the people in the church. And you're to be on guard. You're to protect the church from them. And he, he, he goes on for quite a while, several verses, telling them as elders, as leaders, be careful because this is coming. We have this from the book of Romans. If you read the book of Corinthians, you read about what was going on there in First and Second Corinthians. Paul is being, his leadership and his authority of a church he started is being challenged by guys who literally call themselves super apostles. They came in and they were talked about having visions and being all these great and glorious things and they challenged Paul's teachings. They put him down. They questioned him when he wasn't there. And, and Paul writes about those things. And he, he takes care of it. In fact, he says, oh, you, you know, they want to see this behind my back. I'm coming. <laughs> Let's see what happens when I get there. Uh, we'll see that it, what, whether they really can hold up. And, and you see that in Corinthians. You see it in Galatians. Again, the, the Judaizers had gone into Galatians and had backbit Paul and had undermined his teaching. If you look at the book of Colossians, there was a group there that was into mysticism and pseudo-spirituality that were defrauding people of their inheritance. And Paul said, be very, very careful about these guys. If you look at the book of Philippians, in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul literally says this. He says, beware of the dogs. Now, when I was in college, that was our, our cry. Beware of the dogs. I thought Paul was a dog fan back in the day. I thought maybe he just... You know, he, got, he just, he saw what was coming. But he, uh, he um, but, but really what that meant was a, and if you read on in that passage, he basically talks about people that are false teachers. And he says, beware of them. Beware of them. And if you go throughout the book of Titus, the book of Timothy, where he's writing to a young pastor about leading a church, he tells him to watch out for these guys over and over again. If you go into the book of Peter, when Piz writing, 2 Peter chapter 2, there's a whole chapter dedicated to this topic of false brothers and false teachers and division. If you go to the book of Jude, Jude was Jesus' brother. And he writes in the book of Jude, he begins his letter, he goes, man, I want to write to you guys about our common salvation. I am so excited about what it means to be saved, what it means to be forgiven of our sins, what it means to have the Holy Spirit living inside us. I wanted to write about that, but because of these issues that these guys are bringing into the church, I've got to write about this. So he wrote a whole letter about this topic. First John is dedicated to it as well. So every epistle, every letter deals with this. And Paul is telling these guys, watch out. This is coming. This is going to happen. People that cause division. 
the word in the Greek is literally the word discord. What we get it from, the word discord, is a musical word, and it means somebody who's playing a different note. Somebody's playing different notes. You know, Joe in the band here, you know what it's like when the note gets wrong. The note gets wrong, and it's kind of, uh, you know, and, and if somebody continues to play the wrong note, no matter how talented a musician they are, what do they do? They mess up the whole performance. They mess up what is being orchestrated, and that can happen spiritually. If somebody's in discord, they can really mess up what God is orchestrating and hurt it in a bad way. Discord. He talks about those that, that create obstacles, and it literally is offenses. Those who are just offending people. There's a, a spirit of offense. There's this constant offense that is going on. And then he says those that are contrary to their teaching. Paul had taught about how to handle disputable matters, how to handle differences between Christians. And he says, hey, some guys just aren't going to buy into this. No matter what you say, they're going to be committed to their opinion despite the overall whole, and it's just, it's not good. So Paul is warning them about this in verse 17. He goes on in verse 18. He says, they're serving them, they're not serving our Lord, but their own appetites, their own proclivities. And he talks about not being naive. In verse 19, he expands that. He goes, man, I want you guys to be obedient. He says, I'm so excited that you're obedient, you're, you're humble, you're eager, you have this great teachable heart. It's so sweet. He says, but be with that, be wise at the same time. Be discerning. Discernment is like the sense of smell. You know, you ever gone to eat something and it looks great? And you go and you, something didn't smell right? What do you do? You leave it alone. You leave it alone. If something sm- he goes, I want you to be discerning. I want you to develop a sense of smell spiritually. Uh, and he goes on. And then he says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the word Satan literally means the adversary. The adversary. So the idea is there's going to be an adversary. Any church that's alive is going to have an adversary. There's a devil. That's his job. His job is to hurt, is to wreck, is to try to damage that church. And if you can do it from the inside out, all the better. And he says, hey, there's going to be an adversary. But he says, get excited. Because you know what? The God of what? Peace will crush him under your feet. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And what he means by that, when, he's, when every, Paul says the grace of Christ be with you, grace is talking about the action and the activity of God. When we say we are saved by grace, what I'm saying is that I am saved by the action and the activity of God. Grace alone. It means that God's actions alone provide my salvation. And when we say God's grace be with you, it means that for a church body, God's actions, God acting, God doing his thing, God present and alive and vibrant, be with you all. And so there's an element of spiritual warfare going on here. There's God's activity and God alive, and there's the satanic adversary going on. And Paul's just saying, listen, be smart. Be smart. Be wise. Be discerning of what's going on. Then he goes on here in verse 21. He talks about his team. Timothy, his co-worker, sends his greetings. Timothy had written 1 Corinthians with him. Of course, Timothy has his own, not one, but two books in the Bible. And Timothy was Paul's, probably his main protege that we know about. He was going to be put in charge of the church at Ephesus. Um, Then there's a guy, Lucius. 
He was uh, from the church of Berene. Jason, who we read about, was a guy who was the church of Thessalonica, actually was arrested, almost got killed because of a revival that was going on there in his defense of Paul. He's a real heroic guy. And then Sosipater, um, we read about him in Acts 20. He's just mentioned briefly. But these guys were all three Jewish believers. They were with Paul in Corinth, and they were going to join him in taking this collection to um, Jerusalem. And then he goes on here, verse 22, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you. It's kind of cool. Tertius was Paul's... Um, scribe he wrote his secretary he wrote down this whole letter Tertius gave himself a shout out he's in history forever now good for him you know we would have never known who this who his scribe was and he, he he got his he got his little moment right there praise the lord for Tertius he got himself in there he will be remembered his 15 minutes of fame have come upon him and then the, the next guys he lists Gaius was a, was a guy he baptized in Corinth, we read about in the Corinthian letter. Erastasus was the city's director of public work. This is kind of interesting. Um, in 1929, they did a dig in ancient Greece where Corinth was, and they found a plaque of Erastasus, who was the commissioner of public works. It's kind of a cool uh, note there. So anyway, and these were guys that were at Corinth. This is Paul's team. This is who he's with, and he tells them to send greetings. So Again, let me, let me get back to what Paul is, is really trying to point out here. Christianity is a team sport. And we live in a country, I don't know if you've noticed, it is very divisive. It is very polemical. It is very polarized. It is my side against your side. And it is very easy for that spirit, because we're Christians and we live in it, to get in us and to bring it into our church, and to be prone to it. And to be so familiar with it that we just, we can be really vulnerable to it when we're exposed to it. And this is what Paul's kind of warning them about, is not giving into this, being cautious about the spirit of the age. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul talks about what it means to have a team spirit. And in verse 1, he basically says, look, if being a Christian is of any value to you at all, he says, if being filled with the Holy Spirit's made you happy, if being saved has given you peace, if, if knowing Christ is like a really positive thing in your life, if, if it's possible, he says, listen, do this. Make my joy complete by being united. Be of the same mind. Be of the same heart. Be of the same spirit. Strive together for the work of the gospel. Don't think of yourselves. Think of others as more important than yourselves. Live a, a life of humility. And Paul's saying that's what it means to be a team. I want you to have a team spirit. Now, we talked about discord. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, no band, I'm sure, Joe, is instantly in accord. It takes work, doesn't it? It takes calibrating. And you have to have sort of a standard and sort of a common shared uh, rule to be able to get tuned tune up a band so you can actually play together. And we need to have that as believers. And I want to tell with you, share with you, I think, four values. As I've been a pastor, as I've watched what, what causes division, I've seen every church I've ever been a part of, there's divisions that happen. Those things happen. There's fractures that happen. I've got friends that are pastors we talk, and churches are really facing this a lot. And there's usually four areas where, where these things turn up in. Number one thing, 
is the value we need to have is the clear trumps the opaque. The clear trumps the unclear. That which is obvious is more crucial to us and we embrace it over what's not obvious. Now, in the Bible, there are some things that are kind of not obvious. I don't know if you've noticed that. It'll mention some things, some things that were done 3,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago, and you kind of go, oh, you know, there, there, there's customs, there's all kind of things in there. We're, they're kind of unclear. We don't know really how to apply that to our life. But there are things in the Bible that are extremely clear. It is extremely clear that you and I, if we're Christians, are saved by grace through faith. It is God's actions through Christ that, that bring us salvation. It's very clear to us that we, we need to live by faith. It's very clear to us that there's certain standards of morality and holiness when it comes to generosity, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to personal integrity, the way we relate to one another. That's just kind of laid out pretty, pretty clear there. And there's other things. And what is a crucial thing in you and I living a harmonious life as a church is that the big things, the clear things, are more important to us than the opaque things. Far more important. And I see over and over again in churches and among believers when the opaque, the unclear, becomes sort of a badge of spirituality, you're going to have real problems. You're going to have a real problem. The clear over the opaque. The second thing is, this is very important, is Scripture over the prophetic. Now, what do I mean by the prophetic? What, what do I mean by that? Because but the idea is that if you're going to have a relationship with God, you are going to have him put things on your heart. Everybody's a Christian knows what I'm talking about. There are things he puts on your heart, things that you ask are his will and you're led, you're led by the Holy Spirit. You have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into all the truth. He'll let you know what to do. There's just this incredible thing. Not only do I have Scripture, but I actually have the Holy Spirit living in me, and He's directing my life. You know, when I was going to marry Lisa, there's not a Bible verse that says marry Lisa Goldman. Just couldn't find one. And so how do I know I'm not just marrying her because she's really good-looking and fun? How do I know that? Well, because I have a relationship with God and I can pray and I can, through a process of things, kind of reach a conclusion, hey, this is God's will for my life. When I've had to change jobs and gone from one church to another, there's always been a sense that God was leading me and directing me. I look back on my life, I think every decision we've made in our job-wise was exactly God's will for me. And, and I just was following Him. There, there, so there's all kind of decisions like this. When I started this church, I had a word from God. I literally uh, was woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd wrestled this for a while. I thought, there's no way I'm going to go start to move me and my family by myself to Athens, Georgia, and start a church. It's just, you know, and, but I kept having a, a, you know, God kept putting this on my heart for a while, for years. But I thought, I can't go by myself, whatever. And one morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, God woke me up and really spoke to me to go to Athens and had a very powerful encounter with him. I was led by a prophetic word. Now, I've had 
other things that I thought were God's will, that I pursued, that I went after, that you know what? Didn't come about. And when the Bible talks about the prophetic, when it talks about prophecy, when it talks about this sort of <coughs> intuitive dynamic that we have in our relationship with God, where we sort of try to follow the Lord as He's leading us inwardly, the Bible says this about all prophetic dynamics. They are in part. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 14. They're in part. You prophesy in part. Paul says when you see, when you see the future, when I'm seeing what I feel like God wants to do in our church and even in my life, I'm seeing through a glass dimly. I'm doing the best I can. I see something. I'm going to go after that something. But, but, but you, can, you do it in part. You do it partially. You do it dimly. And what, Paul, what we need to see is that Scripture overrides the prophetic. Particularly if it's somebody else's prophecy. If you've got guys that you're following and you're eating alive that are giving you their word from God about God's destiny for the country or for whatever else, um, hey, that's great. That may really, there's a valid place for that. But do not let that in any way possess you emotionally or intellectually the way the Word of God does. Scripture trumps the prophetic. And so much division happens in a church when that principle is violated. Here's the third thing. The whole trumps the part. The whole trumps the part. You guys familiar with Genesis chapter 1? Anybody read the creation story? Read that? You know, we know in the beginning God created the heavens. And after every day, when God created something, what did it say? It was what? Good. Everybody all say good together. It was good. But on the last day, the Bible says God created everything, and he stepped back and he looked at it. You know what the Bible says it was? It was very good. Very good. What's being communicated there right in the very first chapter of the Bible is your individual life, your individual walk, what God is, it's good. It's beautiful. You are a work of art. There's a, the, you're the handiwork of God. He's crafting something very special in your life and through your life and your gifts and your experiences and your talents and what you have to bring is so beautiful and it's wonderful. But it is only good. It becomes very good as it connects with a bigger, broader picture of something he's doing in a bigger, broader scale. Good. Versus very good. And it's so important we understand the whole is more important than the part. And I have to understand that even in our own church as a pastor because I'm just a part. And sometimes I'll fight for my part and ignore the whole. I can do that too. And I've done that too. And we have to be able to see there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger whole that we're looking at that we're going after. And that God's mind and God's is with the whole. Every time... When I have gone to new churches to work, the, the one thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to fit into what they were doing. 
I could, I could have, I may have thought I was a great preacher and I was a great this and a great that and had all these. It wasn't about me. It was like I wanted to initially fit into what they were doing. I wanted to fit into it. I wanted to become part of that team. I wanted to be a team player. And in time, God made room for my gifts. God made room for me to serve in bigger and broader ways. But just go in there and do that. The whole is greater than the part. The whole is greater than the part. And the last thing that, that we need to see is that unity is more sweet than victory. Unity is more sweet than victory. That it is more important within a church body that we stay united, that we have a, a unified, we have that Philippians chapter 2 spirit, that we're in one mind, we're in one accord, we're contending together for the faith of the gospel, then that we get our way. Unity, unity is way more important than victory. And again, in closing, let me just share with you this. Christianity is a team sport. It's a team sport. And this is how we function as a team. Those four values. What is clear over what is opaque. What is biblical, what is scriptural over what's prophetic. The whole over the part. Unity over victory. This is how we move forward. This is how we march. This is how we've become a real harmonized instrument that's playing great music in God's ears. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sort of hidden gems that are sometimes hidden in these sort of obscure passages. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would make this alive to us. It resonate with us. That we would not be naive, but we'd be discerning. We'd be smart. We'd be keen. That you'd protect us from division. You'd protect us from obstacles. You'd protect us from sort of contrary teachings. It'd really bring tears and bring discord and bring disharmony. It would just make the, the, the sound you're trying to emanate from this church be compromised and be irritating and agitating rather than, than sweet and beautiful. Lord, help us as a whole to glorify you, to honor your greatness, and to see your kingdom expanded in our beautiful city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.